Esther 4, 13b through 14. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Lord God, we submit ourselves to the authority of your holy word, asking that your spirit would open our eyes and soften our hearts. Show us Jesus, teach us the gospel, and make us your people. For the sake of communicating the goodness and glory of your name, we pray. Amen. So to bring you up to speed, the king of Persia, who has total control and yet no control, he has been talked out of the old queen into a new queen who was a Jew, but the king doesn't know that. Meanwhile, the bad guy, Haman, who hates the Jews, is now the king's right-hand man. And not only does Haman have it in for the king's uncle Mordecai, who, by the way, saved the king's life, but Haman has talked the king into letting him destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire. But again, the king doesn't even know that the Jews are Esther's and Mordecai's own people. So think about what's going on here. The most powerful king in the world has given over his power to an evil man who is set on destroying all the Jews in the land, even though they're Queen Esther and King, uh, Queen Esther and Uncle Mordecai's own people, and the king doesn't know, and even if he did know, he couldn't repeal what had now become law. So we've got a major problem here, and Esther's uh, more than a little fuzzled, more than a little confused as to what to do, but she has faith and she has a plan. So in chapter four, she calls on her own people to fast and pray, to ask the hidden king to deliver them. And so here's what happens next. Esther chapter five, verse one. She steps out in faith. On the third day, on the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now, <laughs> you don't just approach the king. I mean, it was not only proper etiquette and deferential respect to wait until the king called upon you it was actual law. You don't just walk up and stand in the king's court. So in this moment, Esther was being either really brave or really foolish. I can imagine that for her, it probably felt like a little of both bravery and foolishness, faith and fear. Keep reading. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Now, on the one hand, <laughs> the statement from the king 
could be just a sort of common, self-indulgent, kingly blathering and boasting like, I'm so rich and powerful and amazing. I could give up half of my kingdom and still be rich and powerful and amazing and king of the world. But on the other hand, there's apparently historical precedent for even King Ahasuerus getting in trouble for promising too much just like this. So it's hard for us to know if his offer was serious, but what we do know is that Esther had won his favor and she had the go-ahead to proceed with her plans, at least for the next step. So she does so pretty carefully, choosing her words in a way that, that pleases the king and that also flatters Haman. Watch how this plays out. Verse 4. Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Notice she says here in verse 4, Let both the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. It's been prepared for the king, but Haman is also invited. The queen prepares a feast for the king and also invites Haman. Keep reading. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, which is a way of saying they were in a light and merry mood, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Now, this is a good sign, but notice that she delays revealing her request until the next day. Verse 7, then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now notice the change here. The first feast in verse four was prepared for the king and Haman was just invited to come along. But here in verse eight, this second feast was prepared, notice, for them. At first, Haman was just a guest. But now, this second feast, he gets to take center stage along with the king. Esther knows exactly what she's doing. She's subtly suggesting to the king that Haman had gotten a little big for his britches. Here's some of how we know. Keep reading. Verse 9. Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. Think of what just happened. He's thinking to himself, I'm so rich and powerful and amazing that not only do I have the king in my back pocket, but I'm soon going to have the queen as well. Notice how quickly that joy changes. Look at this. Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart because of this invite from the queen for this feast. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him. 
When he saw that this lowly Jewish man didn't worship him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. He had wrath and evil in his heart against Mordecai. Nevertheless, verse 10, Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. Notice why he sends here for his friends and his wife. Verse 11. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, because I guess apparently his wife had forgotten. I don't know. So he recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons. And then it says all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Haman's like, look at how awesome I am. Look at me. I'm the best. Bask in my awesomeness. Soak in my greatness, wife and friends. Now, it's not like, think about this. It's not like his wife and friends didn't know these things already, right? It's not like they'd forgotten. I suspect Haman had probably reminded them more than once. But notice that he has invited them to hear of this most recent accolade that needed to be added to the list of Haman's awesomeness. He is in effect here saying, this is how awesome I am, y'all. Look at this. Verse 12. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther. Like, check this out, y'all. Even Queen Esther. Let no one but me, 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 come with the king to the feast she prepared. And check this out, y'all. Not only that, but tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Like, I'm on the same level as the king. But that was not enough for Haman. Look at the next verse. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He's saying this to his wife and his friends. Verse 14. So then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. As we'll see next week, Haman was falling right into Esther's trap. Now, while it seems that there isn't much in chapter 5 that advances the story, chapter 5 is not only laying important groundwork for what comes soon, in the characters of Esther and Haman, chapter 5 is presenting us with contrasting pictures of the battle between God and the evil one that can be instructive for us. You see, Haman is a picture of evil and faith in self. Haman is a character study in what it looks like when the evil one has free reign in a person's life. Think about it. Haman's arrogance and his faith in himself, coupled with his hatred of God's people, meant not only that the poison of his deep-seated grudge prevented him from enjoying life, which is a lesson in itself, but Haman was audacious enough to think that he could build a gallows on one day 
and then simply wake up the next morning to tell the king to hang Mordecai on it. Throughout the book of Esther, Haman takes matters into his own hands and he connives and he schemes to advance himself and to diminish others. This is how the world, apart from God, works. This is how evil moves forward. By meeting out justice for self, apart from God's holy character and nature. Friends, this is a fool's errand. It always results in further loss and pain and ultimately condemnation. It always ultimately fails because as scripture tells us in Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 94, Romans 12, 1 Thessalonians 4, and Hebrews 10, it always ultimately fails because vengeance and ultimate justice against evil are God's work alone. Haman is a picture of how evil extends its kingdom in the here and now by building gallows on which to hang God's people. But Esther, who represents God's people and their faith in him, she depended on the Lord's provision, asking her people to fast and pray, not merely to get the king's approval when she approached him, but more importantly, to bless her feast preparations. Think about this without knowing what would come of them. These were not small dinner parties. It required planning and work, which means that while fasting and praying, while not knowing what the outcome would be, while having no clue as to how things would turn out, Esther and her attendants were preparing a feast, believing that God would use her faithfulness to deliver his people. Yet, without knowing how. Now, building gallows or preparing feasts is more than a pleasant metaphor in an Old Testament story. It's how we plan and position our lives relative to what we believe about the ultimate purpose of the world. It's how we steward our relationships and we direct our resources and we plan our time Building gallows or preparing feasts is the difference between a life of perverting the blessings of God for self or using them wisely to do what he intended without knowing all the ways he will use them. So faith in God means using your resources, knowing that the hidden king will direct them toward the advance of his goodness and your joy without having to know how. Faith in God means using what you have, using your resources, all the while knowing that the hidden king will direct them toward the advance of his goodness and your joy without having to know how. It means a life of putting together scaffolding, not for meeting out personal cosmic justice or gaining worldly accolades, but for things that can stretch you such that fasting and praying 
seem like important prerequisites. If you don't need to depend on God's spirit for your plans, whose plans are they really? You see, friends, only the hidden king is able to manage how to use your work for the sake of his work. If you actually believe this, you will steward your resources and plan your time and leverage your relationships so that the kingdom of God can be advanced through you without having to know how. Think about this. God has given you much more than you think to do much more than you can know. If we are part of God's people and we have faith in his plans for what we have and for what we do, then we will use our resources to prepare feasts that we believe God will use. So let's take a minute and think about this takeaway question. What is a feast God has positioned you to prepare that has potential to advance his kingdom? Friends, as we've been saying in this series, God uses our everyday boring faithfulness, not just to build his heroes, but also to expand his kingdom. He wants to use your life's resources and relationships to bring himself glory and to bring you joy. God wants you to prepare feasts all the while perhaps feeling like everyone around you is preparing gallows on which to hang you. This is the beauty of who God is and what he's done in Christ. If Haman is a picture of how evil extends its kingdom by building gallows on which to hang you for your sins, then Christ is the picture of redemption. He hanged on a cross, not only so you don't have to, but so that your redeemed life can become part of his kingdom's advance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful that you've given us more than we could ever need, that you've supplied us with blessing and resources and favor, that you've given us relationships. And so Father, we want to see our life's resources as a part of your economy. Faithfully, using them in ways 
that we trust you will use for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of moving forward the advance of your goodness being made known through us. And so in those tensions where we don't know how that's working and what the fruit is and where you're headed with our faithfulness, Father, we want to continue to do what you've called us to do, to fast and to pray and to prepare feasts, to serve in ways that are fruitful and that advance your glory. We want to be an encouragement to others around us so that they would likewise see their lives as a part of your economy. We want to be marriages and families. We want to be a community of faith. We want to be a people who extend your goodness and your glory because of our everyday boring faithfulness. Even though we're not sure how it'll be used, help us to take the next right step, Lord. Help us to ask that question of what's next in our lives. Help us to see who we are and what we do and what we have and all of our relationships as a part of what you're doing in the world, Lord, so that just like you sent your son to become for us perfect, sinless righteousness that was sacrificed so that we could know life, our lives would be used, spent according to that same death to self, being raised to new life kind of model so that you would do what you can do. You've done what we couldn't in Christ because you could. And so use our faithfulness in ways that we know that only you can. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.